0: Alright guys, good morning. Welcome to church. Glad you guys are here. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, go ahead and flip to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to be camped out there for the rest of our time together this morning as we continue in uh, through our series through the book of Jonah. Definitely a very interesting book and and it's one of those books that can just be, it teaches a lot. Perhaps we know some parts of the story of Jonah and so it's good as we, we walk through this together. And so this morning as we get started, I just want you to think about some of the shows or movies. Maybe you're a TV guy, maybe like movies and shows like I do. But there are certain shows or certain movies where secondary characters end up stealing the spotlight, and maybe you think of some of these for me, like think about a movie, uh, the Harry Potter movie series, there's eight movies in a Harry Potter movie series, there's one moment in the last movie, so it's the seventh book, eighth movie, where this random character called Neville Longbottom comes up and gives this incredible rah-rah speech, against Lord Voldemort. Yes, I said Voldemort. And like, there's this moment, it's just like, that's the moment for me. Out of all of the movies, like that's what I remember. I've actually gone back to watch that scene a few times because it's so powerful. But if you think about like TV shows, like there are just different characters that aren't necessarily the main character that kind of steal the spotlight. So if you've seen the movie or the show Community, it's Troy and Abed, right? Like they steal the spotlight. If you've seen the show Brooklyn Nine-Nine, it's Gina. If you've seen the show um, Parks and Rec, for me, it's Andy and it's April. Like, weird couple, but they kind of steal the spotlight. And also, in Friends, lover or hater, it's Janice, right? That somehow, like, she just steals the spotlight and takes it away from the main characters. And perhaps if you've seen Friends, you're kind of cringing now, hearing her voice. And, like, she just kind of steals the spotlight. And we started off this series in the Book of Jonah by talking about how the fish is not the thing. As we study the book of Jonah, the fish is not the thing. And what we're going to do today is, is we're, going to be, we're going to study some characters in chapter 3. And so the danger, though, as we walk through chapter 3, is to let the, the secondary characters kind of overwhelm and overshadow the primary character, the main character of the story. And so just to recap for us in Jonah chapter 1, God shows up to Jonah and tells Jonah, Hey, go to Nineveh, go preach against it. And Jonah says, no thanks, God. In fact, he doesn't just say no. He gets on a ship and he runs away from what God has told him to do. He runs into a completely opposite direction. God shows up with this massive storm. And Jonah ends up, rather than going to Nineveh, he decides he does the most selfish thing ever. He's like, just throw me into the water. And so he throws him into the water and God calms the storm and provides this big fish to swallow him up. Then Jonah hangs out in the fish for three days and three nights in this darkness as he goes down, down into the deep. And for three days, he just sits in this. And sometime during this moment, he repents. He he prays to God. And eventually, at the end of the three days, where we ended last week is in verse 10 of chapter 2. It says this. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out on the beach. So as we head into chapter 3, this is where we find Jonah. He's sitting on the beach. And in the story of Jonah's chapter three, there are three different characters that really pop up in the story two secondary characters and a primary character. And I just want us to walk through these together. The first one, of course, is Jonah. So Jonah is the character we're first going to look at. And here's the thing as we see Jonah in chapter three. The book may have his name. but chapter three really isn't about Jonah. Like it has a little bit. There's a bit we can learn from him, but. He's not really the main character, right? So we will spend the least amount of time on him. So Jonah's there. He's sitting on a beach. And God shows up again and says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. This time, Jonah does some things differently. So let's look at verse 3. This time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. And I think for a moment, we've got to give a little bit of credit to Jonah because he actually goes this time. God told him to go, and he says no the first time, and then finally he says yes, and and he goes. I don't really know what you do, and God has just hung out. We've hung out in the belly of a fish for three days, but he goes. He does what God tells him to do. He's not insane. He realizes, I cannot get out of this. You know what the definition of insanity is? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. So this time he doesn't run. This time... He goes. And Jonah grasps a little bit. He finally does what God wants him to do. He knows there's, there's no way around this. I've tried to get around it. I've tried to do things the opposite. It didn't work. So he grasps. he's like, I cannot get out of this, so I might as well go. And I think we got to give him some credit for that. Right? At least true to his word a little bit of with the command and the, the commitment that he's made in the belly of the fish. Like, he goes. And if you look at a map, like there at Nineveh, it is not close to water. And so Jonah has made this hundreds of kilometer trip into Nineveh, this huge place, and he walks through. It takes three days to see it Also, So he's, he's made the trip, he's gone, and he's done this. And in verse 4, we find this. It says, On the day that Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Don't miss his sermon. Okay? Listen again. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. It's literally five words in the Hebrew. And, and, and that's it. So maybe you're thinking right now, it's like Luke, Steve, and Nick, you guys could take a, a message, a lesson from Jonah here, a little bit shorter sermons, but, but literally, as you think about this, is it possible that Jonah said more absolutely? Is that did he say more? probably, but the writer is trying to indicate something for us in these five words. He's trying to tell us something about Jonah. Thing number one is his heart. His heart isn't in it. Clearly, his heart is not here. He has to go. He can't run away. This time, he doesn't want to be here. So his heart heart isn't in it. He just goes and he gives these five Hebrew words to, to the people. It kind of reminds me of times sometimes when, when my kids are misbehaving, and they'll do something to one of their siblings, and we'll tell them, like, you need to go apologize. And they'll go up to them and be like, sorry. And like, I'm like, no, no, that's, that's not how we're going to apologize. You have to mean it. And that's when, like, everything falls apart, right? It's like, I can say sorry without really meaning it, but when we tell them to mean it, that's a whole different problem. And here we find Jonah. Jonas, God says, Jonah, go. He's like, fine, I'll go. I'm not going to be happy about it. I'm not going to like it. And so he goes and he mutters these five words. And so his heart isn't in it. And also he just does the bare minimum. Jonah just does the least he can do to get away with it. And so he looks at God's command. He says, okay, God, you said I had to go to Nineveh. I went. You didn't say I had to love the people. You didn't say I had to try. You didn't have to say I had to put in a lot of effort and energy into these people. You said I had to go and I had to preach this message. I've gone. I've done my duty. I want to go home. And this is what we see with Jonah. And although he very well could have repented in chapter 2, there's something in this moment for Jonah. It's like his heart is not in it. He's not doing what God really wants him to do. He really doesn't care for the people the way that God cares for the people. And if we miss this part of Jonah, when we study next week in Jonah chapter 4, that's going to come as quite a shock to us to see what he does. So it's hard as a minute. He's just doing the minimum. But here's what what I love. As we read through this story, Jonah goes, he mutters these five words. Doesn't have a heart for it. Does the minimum. But guess what happens with the Ninevites anyway? There is repentance. They hear this heart message in their heart. They hear this message in their hearts Their change is a good reminder for us that heart's tran- heart transformation is God's specialty, not ours. So Jonah rolls up. Doesn't really even try. He gives the least amount of effort that he can. And God still moves the people. There's still repentance in their heart. And it's a reminder that it's not always, it's not about us. That heart transformation is what is God's specialty. God can use anyone, even a prejudiced person who's walking into Nineveh, and doesn't really want to be here. God uses that person to change people to change hearts of people this would be a good reminder for us that we should never count anyone else. We should never think that person is too far gone. We should never think of a person like oh well, they will never accept the message of Jesus because heart transformation is God's specialty. so the people of Nineveh, they they repent. Their lives are changed. So they're the second character in the story is the Ninevites. Let's read verse 5. The people of Nineveh believe God's message. And from the greatest to the least, they declare to fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. Just in verse 5, I want us to catch a little phrase, a little terminology that is used here. It's this, from the least to the greatest. Because this is the reality of sin. This is what sin does. It it levels the playing field. There is no great, there is no least. We are all equally guilty. And we see that there's this lack of social status when it comes to sin. The king is guilty to the lowest servant is guilty. Everyone is guilty. And it's the opposite of what grace does. Grace makes everyone equally free and sinless, and and removed of that sin. But yet, here we find the least and the greatest. They are all guilty, and there is a guilt that is given to all, the entire village. Perhaps you remember from week one that sin has consequences, that there's always communal consequences that happen, and so all the people of Nineveh, they are all guilty. But then in verse six, we find this. When the king heard what what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat in a heap of ashes. Again, listen. From a royal robe to wearing sackcloth. From a, from a, 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 a throne to a pile and a heap of ashes. This is what sin does. Sin destroys Sin demolishes, sin removes, sin is destructive, and it's painful, it ruins lives, it ruins family, it tears apart, it destroys, and it is not something that we should play with. It's not something that we should just try to mess around with. And so he goes, and they put on, the king and the people, they put on sackcloth, and they sit in ashes. And so what this is meant to indicate, as we read through this, we'll see this from time to time in a moment of repentance, is sackcloth would have been like some burlap that they would have put on that would have been extremely uncomfortable to wear. It would have been really itchy and really uncomfortable and painful. And then ashes were meant to indicate death, right? And so what would have happened is when people put on sackcloth, when people sat in ashes, what they are showing is an outward experience of what is going on in the inside. Is there's is this uncomfortable, there's this pain that's going on, there's this death that we are feeling or this death that we are experiencing and we're sitting in, and this is what the king does. But make sure you don't miss what the king does in this moment. It says this. It says, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. Don't miss that. He stepped down. What is that? That's Humility. That's repentance. This is what he is doing. He is humbling himself. He is leaving his powerful position. He is leaving his powerful throne, and he is stepping down. Here's the reality. Repentance requires humility. It is impossible for us to repent without humility. It is impossible for us to repent of our sin without first humbling ourselves. This is what the king does. He dresses himself in, ash, in, in sackcloth. He sits himself in ashes. And the story of the scriptures is, is that one day we are all going to bow before the king. We are all going to bow before God. And there's one of two options in that. Either we're going to do it voluntarily or we're going to do it, but we're going to be forced to do it one, one way or the other. And the same thing happens with repentance. The same thing happens with humility. So we read through the scriptures. There are two ways. One is we can humble ourselves. Or two, God can humble us. One of the two options. You're You're going to be humbled. It's up to you how you're going to be humbled. So we can humble ourselves or we can be humiliated. It's really up to us. The king decides, I am going to humble myself. I'm going to step down. I'm going to clothe myself in sackcloth and in ashes. He continues on. He gives this decree. Says this No one, even the animals from the herds and the flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning. We must pray earnestly to God that they will turn, they must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. The king's decree, it makes it clear every single person is guilty. I don't know how the animals are guilty, but apparently, according to him, they are as well. And so they're all going to have to fast. They're all going to have to be clothed in these clothes. And there's this moment here. I don't want us to miss this, though. It's catch this phrase. They must turn from their violence. You know what that is? That's repentance language. That's the idea. As we read through the Old Testament, there are two words that are regularly translated for repent. One means to be sorry and to change a mind. The other one that we put them together is this idea of of turning back or to return, to return to our default position the way that we were created to be. And so in order for there to be repentance, there has to be change. In order for there to be repentance, violence has to stop. The people can't say, hey, we repent of our sins and continue with the violence. That's not how it works. That's not repentance. That's, that's remorse. And as we think about this story, and we look at this, like the people of Nineveh, they easily could have been remorseful. Like they could have looked around and been like, man, I am really sorry for what we've done. I feel terrible about it. Not so bad to, to go and do anything different. But, man, we feel bad. Like, they could have been remorseful, but would that have moved the heart of the Father? It's the repentance that changes here. It's the behavior that has to change and and be realigned to return back to what God has for us. Think about the difference in repentance and and remorse in this way. Think about someone who, who goes out the town. They, they go and they get drunk or, or, or whatever it may be, and they come home and they just lose their mind. They lose their temper with their wife and their kids and their families, and they're just hateful. And in the morning, they're reminded of their actions, and they feel really bad and feel really guilty about it. Maybe even break down and cry until they go to the pub the next night and returns it. again. That's that's remorse, but it's not repentance. Or think about maybe, maybe gossiping. Maybe this person comes like, hey, you know what, you were gossiping and, and I don't appreciate that. And you're like, oh man, I am so, I'm so sorry. You're right. I was wrong to do that. And you finish that conversation, you hug it out and you walk away and you go to another friend but, Can you believe what she just said to me? And you start gossiping about the fact that you were gossiping. Like that's remorse. It's not repentance. Remorse says, I'm sorry you feel that way. Or oh, I'm sorry you don't see things my way. Or I'm sorry that that hurts you. Or I'm sorry things aren't different. That's what remorse says. Repentance says, I'm sorry. I really messed up. And here are some things that I'm going to do differently. Here's the direction of my life that is going to change. Repentance is this turning back and not just turning from our evil. But the idea when we read repentance in the scripture is always returning and returning back to God. So we turn and we return. And this is what these people do. God is not just satisfied for us to feel sorry about our sin. He wants us to repent of it. He wants us to turn from it and turn and to pursue him. And as we see this with the king, the king captures this perfectly. He doesn't just say, hey, people, sit and sack off in ashes, feel really bad about what happened. No, it's that phrase. It's like, we're not just going to do the rituals. We're not just going to do the things that would represent us feeling bad. We have to put an end to the violence. So what is it for you in your own life? Maybe wrestle with this this week. Are you remorseful of your sin? Or are you repentant of your sin? Does your sin make you feel bad? So bad that you you make some changes and you pursue God wholeheartedly? Or is it just, you just feel bad? What is it? Are you remorseful or are you repentant? Verse 9, it says this. He's continuing his decree. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet, God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. Here's what the king realizes. That it's not through sackcloth and ashes. That it's not even through repentance that they can be rescued. The only way that they can be rescued is if God changes his mind. And God does something miraculous. If God does something that is completely undeserved, here's what they realize. like We can go through these steps. We can do these things. But the only hope for Nineveh is for God to step in and do something miraculous and to do something life-changing. The only hope for Nineveh is that God will do the thing that he did for Jonah and rescue him in the middle of the darkness. That's the only hope that they have. And so don't miss this grace and forgiveness are always undeserved and miraculous grace and forgiveness are always undeserved and miraculous there is nothing that we can do to earn the grace of the father it is undeserved it is nothing more than miraculous the fact that jesus played our price to save us to rescue us from our sins like grace is undeserved And it's it's miraculous. It was miraculous and undeserved for Jonah. It's miraculous and it's undeserved for the people of Nineveh. It's miraculous and it's undeserved for me. And it's miraculous and undeserved for you. And if you remember the message of Nineveh, is that Nineveh will be destroyed. And here's what's fascinating. As we look at that word destroyed, it can also be be translated overturned or turned upside down. So one way or the other, whether through destruction or through repentance, Nineveh is never going to be the same. Nineveh is going to be turned upside down. Nineveh is going to be overturned. So Jonah is not the main character of the story. Nineveh in chapter three, not the main character of the story. Spoiler alert, the main character of the story. Everybody got a guess? It's God. God is the main character of the story right? God's main character of the Bible anyway. But in chapter three, maybe more than any other chapter in all of Jonah, we see the beauty, we see the power. This chapter is all about God. As we look at chapter three, there is a spotlight that is just shining on God. This passage, it is saturated with God's heart for renewal, repentance, and compassion. So here's what I want to do for the next few minutes. We're going to walk through each of these These characteristics we see play out. So God's heart for renewal, God's heart for repentance, and God's heart for compassion. So let's look at renewal first. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 as the story starts again. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message that I give you. And perhaps as we read that, that's a reminder of something that you read in chapter 1. Because here's the reality. This is the exact same commission that God has given Jonah in chapter 1. He tells him the exact same thing. He tells him, he calls him to do the exact same thing. And I want you to notice what's not missing, what's what's missing here, what's not included when God shows up to Jonah. He doesn't say, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach to them. And I remember last time you ran away. Remember what I did to you, Jonah? Remember how I rescued you? Don't do that again. There's none of that. God just says, hey, go to Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach through it. God doesn't even say, Jonah, remember that vow that you made in the belly of the fish? You thought I wasn't listening, buddy. I heard you, and I'm going to quote you verbatim. Here's what you said. you better got to remember that because this is what you're going to do. It's not what God does. God just shows up to Jonah, and he says, go to Nineveh and preach. It's the exact same commission that he has done. And here's the reality. God is renewing Jonah. He's giving him this opportunity. Here's the reality of our lives. Is we can't undo the past. We can't undo the past. But we can have a new future. We cannot undo what has happened in the past, but our futures can change. What we do from now on, it can be different. So, with God, he is going to Jonah and he is giving them this commission. He is renewing Jonah. He is offering him a new beginning. He's saying things can be different this time, Jonah. It doesn't have to be like it was last time. And he's going to him, he's giving them this renewed opportunity and this renewed life. And it reminds me of the way that Jesus interacts with Peter in John chapter 21. So, perhaps you know the story of Peter. Peter is famously known for in the Gospel of denying Jesus three times. They're in the upper room, and Jesus tells Peter, Peter, or Peter says, Jesus, if I have to, I'll die for you. And Jesus says, well, Peter, actually, before the rooster rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Peter is indignant by this. No way. Sure enough. Three different times, Peter, Jesus, Peter says, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. Calls down curses upon himself. I do not know him. And then the rooster crows. And in Luke's gospel, there's this interesting detail that then their eyes meets. And Peter realizes he's done what he never he said he would never do. He's become what he never wanted to be. And scripture says that, that Peter goes and he meets bitterly. Now, fast forward to John chapter 21. Jesus and the disciples are sitting on a beach. Jesus is cooking up some food, cooking up some fish for the people over a fire. And there's smoke in the air. there's something about smells that that jog our memory, right? And I just think in this moment that that Peter was reminded, reminded of another fire. But he was around warming his hands when he denied knowing Jesus. And in this moment, maybe all the other disciples are so excited. We're eating with Jesus again. This is great. We're finally back with him. But then there's Peter. And I just picture those three words three times playing over again and again and again in his mind. I think Jesus knows that. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, Feed my sheep. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Again, Peter says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, Feed my lambs. And the third time, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, You know that I love you, Lord. Jesus says, Take care of my sheep. So one time, for every time that Peter denied Jesus, Jesus asked him, do you love me? And he's telling Peter, Peter, you blew it, man. But you're still on the team. I still have work for you to do. There's still more that you have. This is not the end for you, Peter. There's still so much for you to do. And he reinstates, he gives Peter, he renews Peter. And God is doing the exact same thing for Jonah. Isn't it a comfort to know? That we have a God who doesn't bail on us. That we have a God who doesn't keep score. We have a God whose desire is to renew and to restore people. And here's one of the things that I I love about God. Is that he forgets. He forgets our sin. He forgets our rebellion. He, He forgets our wrongdoing. He doesn't remind Jonah of his sin. He doesn't remind Jonah of his rebellion. He doesn't remind Jonah of his failure, of the vow that he made. He reminds him of his commission. He reminds him of what he is called to do. here's the reality about God. Is God is not a God of second chances. He's a God of another chance. God is not just a God of a second chance. He's a God of another chance. And that's really good news for me and perhaps for you because I've messed up the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance and we can go on and on. God is this God of another chance. He gives Jonah another chance. He forgives. He restores. He renews him. God's heart is for renewal. He renews Jonah. He wants to renew Nineveh. That is why he is sending Jonah in the first place. Let's read verse 10. see God's heart for repentance. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. So God's heart is for repentance. The reality is if repentance wasn't an option, God wouldn't have sent Jonah in the first place. And so he goes, and and throughout Scripture, one of the things that we tend to see is that constantly God's judgment and God's justice and God's discipline on a people is always aimed at repentance. God wants to draw people back. God is a good parent who wants to bring people back into relationship with him and help do things differently. And so as a parent, you don't punish your kids just because it's fun. Because the reality is it's not fun for anyone. But God does this to draw people back into a correct relationship with him. That's what he wants. And When God saw that they had repented, when he saw that they had turned from their evil ways, he changes his mind, and God turns and does some things differently. There may be nothing that moves the heart of God faster than repentance. Because when God sees repentance, he comes running. Maybe you remember the story, the great story Jesus tells of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. In Luke 15, there's this, this, these two sons, and the youngest son says to the father, Father, I wish you were dead. Give me my share of the estate and my inheritance. Much to the surprise, the father doesn't. He gives it to him, and, and he goes, and this younger son runs off, and he he, gives, he spends his money on wild living. And eventually a famine hits and he runs out of money and he's hanging out in some pig pens and he's so hungry that he wants to eat what the pigs are eating. And finally he has this moment, this moment in his mind is like, well, I can go back to my dad and I can be a servant in his house. At least I'll have food to eat. And he goes and he turns around and he starts heading home. And in verse 15 of this story, Jesus says this. So when he returned to his father, while he was still a long way off, His father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. The father is showing us what God is like. Because we have a God who runs to us. And in that day, in that culture, it was undignified for a man to run. There would have been a gasp when Jesus says, the father run, because he's pulling up his tunic, he's running, and they're all looking around like, my dad's never done that. And that's the father. Like when there's repentance he comes running, and there's this moment here that it says of the Son that I think captures us so well, while he was still a long way off. That's the best we're ever going to be, is a long way off. We are in desperate need of the Father to come and to reach us where we are because we will never be able to get to him. And so the Father runs to the Son, and then in this moment of repentance, God goes while there's still a long way off, and he meets us there. He does this for that's just for the people of Nineveh. He does it for Jonah. He meets him where he is, and he's there for him. The reality is, God doesn't expect us to clean ourselves all up, get ourselves all better, and make sure everything's good to go, and then we can come to him, and he comes to us after we have been in the pig pen, while we're in the pig pen. He comes to us while we're in the belly of the fish. And he's there, and he's just this God whose heart moves for repentance. His heart moves for renewal. And the reason he does this. So it's described in the parable that this feels filled with compassion because that is who God is. God is a God of compassion. We see compassion oozing from the pages of all of these scriptures. We see that God is compassionate to Jonah. He's compassionate to the people of Nineveh. God is compassionate to you. He is compassionate to me. This is actually the characteristic that Jonah's going to hold against God in the next chapter. Compassion is who he is, it's the core of God's identity and the core of his being. In Genesis or in Exodus 34, when God asks, when God tells Moses his name, one of the things I'm compassionate, slow to anger. And here's what I love about the story is God is so compassionate that, that Jonah doesn't change God's mind. About Nineveh, God isn't sitting there when Jonah's in the belly of a fish. Be like, "Wow, Jonah, if you're this feel this strongly about Nineveh, maybe I've overestimated their underestimated their badness." I mean, if you feel this bad about them, perhaps maybe they're worse than I thought they were. Like it doesn't change God's mind. He is still full of compassion. And here's the reality: there is no hearts that cannot be restored, renewed, and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Church, don't miss that. There is no heart. There is no life. There is no single person that cannot be renewed or restored and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. It was true for Jonah. It was true for the Ninevites. It's true for me, and it's true for you. There is no one beyond the grace of God. There is no too far gone. There is no sin great. There is no addiction too firm. There is no power too strong. There is no situation too dysfunctional. There is no choice too final. There is no too much damage has been done. As long as you still have blood in your veins, you still have air in your lungs, you have a heart in your chest, as long as that is still the case, there is a chance for renewal. No one is beyond the grace of God. If he can rescue Nineveh, if he can rescue Jonah, if he can rescue me, No one is too far gone. Do you believe that, church? I do. I believe it with everything in me. I believe it because I believe the scriptures. But I believe it as well because I've seen it. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of other people. There is no one that cannot be renewed, redeemed, and restored by the power of the gospel, by the blood of Jesus. And it comes through two simple steps repentance, and surrender. Notice I said simple, not easy. It's not easy, but it's simple. Through repentance, through turning away from our sin and turning back to the Father. And then we surrender our lives fully to him. Okay, God, I'm going to give my everything to you. There's no life, there's no heart that cannot be renewed, restored, and redeemed by the blood of Jesus through the power of repentance and through surrendering our lives to him. Because the only way to experience God's compassion is to come down off our throne and bow at his throne. This is what the king does. He steps down from his throne and just bows before the Father. It's the same thing that we have to do. This is the way that we experience the grace of the Father. We step down. Whatever throne in our own lives that we have made, whatever whatever way that we've made God of our own heart, we walk away from that, we turn away from that, we repent of that, and we surrender. We surrender to Jesus. Surrender to the Lordship of him. One of my favorite researchers is a lady by the name of Brene Brown she is a, a shame researcher so some kind of a bummer of a research but in one of her talks is called the power of vulnerability and she talks about the difference between empathy and sympathy like these words sound really similar but they, there's a little difference a small difference in between them sympathy says this so we, we she uses this idea of a person in a pit so sympathy says and it looks at the person who's fallen in a pit it's like man i'm sorry you're in a pit that, that, that's so bad. I'm sorry about that. I'll pray for you. That's what sympathy says. It, it feels sorry for someone. Whereas empathy it identifies with them. So empathy says and sees a person in a pit and they take a rope and they tie it to a tree and they climb down into the pit. And it's like, hey, man, you're in a pit. I'm sorry about that. I've been there. Let me help you walk out of this. Let me help you get out of this. So sympathy feels bad, whereas empathy gets in the mess here's where I'm going with that, is we don't have a God who is just sympathetic about our sinful condition. God is not just standing over the rails of heaven looking like, well, boy, you made a mess of your life. If you just want to listen to me, I'm sorry, but it's not what God does. It's not what God did. God wasn't just sympathetic about our sinful condition. No, he was, he was sympathetic. He got down in the pit with us. He sent Jesus to get down in the mess of our lives to rescue us, to reach down so that we could be pulled out of the pit. And here's the beautiful picture of Scripture. is because Jesus left his throne and came down to heaven, we can stand before the throne. So what the writer of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews 4 is that boldly we can approach the throne of God because Jesus came down to us and rescued us out of a pit. Here's the reality forgiveness is available. Second chances are possible, and the love of the Father never runs out. It was true for Jonah, it's true for the people of Nineveh, it's true for me, it's true for you. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. And God, we are just grateful that you.